I'm right at the very start of a new book. This one's going to be about how change happens. Its focus will be about how to make change happen in organizations, and it will touch on both personal change and systemic change. And the real quest will be to try and discern the key signals about change, the signals in amongst all the noise, because there is a lot of noise about change, a bazillion different models, theories, and anecdotes, and so on. One thing I know will be foundational to the new book is the insight that we're all wired to add on as humans. In any situation, the default is typically what's required and how do I know more, do more, and think more, and be more. And this is the insight. For change to happen, what's almost always a more effective approach is its opposite, subtraction. What needs to be stopped? What needs to be eliminated? My friend Scott Stratton has unlearn tattooed on his forearm. That is a powerful and provocative call to action. So for me to be the next best version of who I am, what do I need to unlearn about myself, about the way I show up in the world, about the world? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Hilary Jacobs Handel is a psychotherapist and an author and a speaker, and in her own words, at the heart of it, a nerd. I am a nice Jewish girl from New York City, born and raised in Manhattan by a psychiatrist and a mother who was a guidance counselor, very psychologically oriented family, and was really a science nerd, which I say lovingly from the get-go. I, I always joke, I don't know much, but I know a lot about science. Her first stab at being a professional turned around to, pardon the pun, to bite her. My first career was a dentist and um, ended up hating that, leaving it, floundering for 10 years. And then at the age of 39, after 9-11, I sort of was able to reclaim something that I was always interested in, which was psychotherapy, having been raised by a psychiatrist. And so Hillary's patients went from being in the dentist chair to being on the psychotherapist couch, from dealing with toothache to dealing with soul ache. We're all lousy about talking about emotions because nobody talks about them, so we don't have much practice. In fact, I always joke if I say I teach emotions, if I go to a party and people ask me what I do, half the people run for their lives. Now, if I was at that party, well, I'd be torn. I mean, one half of me is hungry to learn more, and the other is slowly backing away and hoping she wouldn't notice me. But in fact, what led Hillary to her current career and expertise was a moment when she didn't run away. It's a twist of fate that transformed Hillary's professional and personal life forever. It was a moment where she somehow found herself in a conference that she didn't mean to attend. So I stumbled into this conference on emotions and trauma and attachment uh, and heard Diana Fosha speak, which is her, the book that I'm going to be reading from later. And I was blown away for two reasons. One, my mental health improved in in one aha moment <laughs> um, with that triangle that I then became yeah. so passionate about writing about. 
But also, I was also blown away by where was this information? I was a biochemistry major at a prestigious university in the United States. Uh, I went to dental school at Columbia and studied with the medical students. I was a, I'm a psychoanalyst by training. We we didn't. No one was talking about emotions. And I have to say to, to people listening out there that the whole point of understanding emotions really is to have uh, empowering tools to decrease anxiety and depression and the symptoms that we all have as humans. Mm. So it's not just you know leaning into these painful experiences for the sake of it. It really gets you to a better place in life where we can meet the challenges of life. So there is a there's a method to the madness and a reason. Yeah. Uh, for all this. So that moment, getting back to your question, was yeah. I was my first after I'd, I learned about AEDP, which is this method that I began um, training in. It was the very first training. And what they had at, we broke out into experiential exercises where somebody would play the therapist and somebody would play, pay, play the patient. And the therapist I was the patient, and the therapist asked me, the prompt was, uh, what's it like to think about learning this method? And then we were supposed to notice how we felt inside. Mm. And I said, well, I feel anxiety. And the next prompt was, can you turn into your body, scan your body from head to toe and toe to head, and notice where in your body you experience and, and sense that anxiety. And at that moment, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> if I lean into this anxiety, I'm going to lose control. It's going to get worse. Right. I was terrified, but I trusted. Yeah. I went inside my body. I noticed the sensations of tension in my chest that told me that I was anxious. And I breathed as I was instructed to do. And voila, the anxiety went down. Mm. Nada, mm. and it was it was a revelation because it was counterintuitive. What had happened to allow you to be open to that in that moment? Because if you've had thirty nine years of not doing that, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of non practice you've had. <laughs> yes, I'm curious yes. to know what what allowed that to happen in that moment. Yes. I love how you say the non-practice. In fact, it was discouraged because I'm um, growing up with a New York City psychiatrist. We didn't talk about emotions. That was like woo-woo California BS. Mm -hmm. You know, the the state of the art was going intellectualizing and and having insight. And insight yeah. is great. And and we're really talking about awareness. But what what led up to that moment was two two things. One, I had had a history of. I knew I was anxious as a kid, and the way that I dealt with it was to was to work. I channeled a lot of energy into working hard in school mm. and being busy, and that was great. I was lucky because that's an adaptive defense, as we call it. It's terrific. Right. I did well in school, and um, I had to like get everything done. I was the kid who got their papers done a week in advance to get <sighs> rid of my anxiety. Right. But the other thing, uh, I had suffered. Um, two depressions in my uh, 20s, major depressions, where I went on uh, Prozac for six months, uh, being prescribed by a psychiatrist, and then my serotonin replenished. But going through those experiences, 
One, I learned that I couldn't just pile on stress, that it, mm. the, the first depression told me that, wow, I actually have to take care of myself. I can't just handle, because I prided myself on, I can take it. I can handle whatever comes. And, um, but I still didn't know anything about emotions. So I thought that depression was sort of the end result, that this is just something that happened. I didn't realize there was something beyond my anxiety, something deeper, something deeper than my depression. So it was that I had experienced these symptoms and being presented with information about emotions demystified them enough that I wasn't as frightened. They weren't as mm. scary because there was something I learned about them. And that just gave me the courage to um, begin to tinker with what was going on in my body. I didn't, before that, I would swear there wasn't a connection between the mind and body. I was really, <laughs> in New York, we're sort of ahead of the times, but we were also behind the times in this way. Right. Kind of ahead of the times, meaning in your head rather exactly. than... Exactly. Yeah. Very well. Very well said. What have you had to unlearn as you've deepened your practice in this area? These are such great questions, Michael. Thank you. Um, well, studying in this method. So now I am certified as a psychotherapist in accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I also train and teach others uh, in this method. Uh, so what I, I also trained to become a psychoanalyst, and what I had to unlearn was a way of listening to somebody's narrative and someone's story and trying to formulate um, uh, interpretations. That's what Freud, that's what you were supposed to do is come up with interpretations. In AEDP, it's very different. We track what's what a person and ourselves and the relationship. We track those three things moment to moment, and we're I'm really looking for how the body is speaking because somebody can be telling me a story, and I can see that they're let's say they're wringing their hands, and I know mm. that 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 they're anxious as they're sharing, or they're tearing up, or they're breaking eye contact. And I'm now shifting my way from listening with my ears to really listening with my eyes. And when I see emotion and I track, I'm tracking emotion all the time, that's my signal that we are going to, I'm going to politely interrupt and say something like, I'm interested in everything that you're saying. And I'm just so aware that as you're sharing this uh, sad story, you're smiling can we get curious about that? Right. If you tune into that smile on your on your face, what's it telling us? Yeah. And people feel very seen when that happens. They it, it registers as a calming experience to be noticed and seen, especially if you're adept at not of helping someone not feel ashamed or judged or looked at, which is yeah. part of uh, creating a, a secure attachment with somebody. So it was unlearning how to do interpretations and learning how to track moment to moment. That was the most difficult part. I mean, in some ways I'm, you know, we're so wired to interpret because our, we are pattern making creatures. So whether you're trained or not, there's a way that you're always finding the story in the, the stuff that you see. But I'm, I feel like you're pointing to 
the the gaps between the different stimuli that you're seeing rather than trying to connect the, the stimuli that you're seeing. That's interesting. I, I'm not sure because it's all connected, but what yeah. happens is that the the body and emotions and thinking yeah. can happen simultaneously and parallel on three different planes. Right. So I can tell you, Michael, I'm fine today, <laughs> but I may yeah. be experiencing um, a depression at the moment or a lot of anger mm. that I'm hiding, and my body may be experiencing tightness and tension. Right. And so it's all connected, but we're through this triangle, which is a diagram that kind of explains how the mind and body work when it comes to emotions. That's universal. We're really... That's what brings it all together. It's connecting the way we block emotion with the way we inhibit emotion yeah. and making space for emotion so that people can uh, feel relief. Sure. What freedom has this work given you? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's personally, it's transformed my mental health. Mm. Um, that that counterintuitive where when I work with someone new, you know, and I ask them a question, I can see they go up in their head to think. And so retraining from practicing this for 20 years mm. and walking the walk, um, I'm in my body uh, as I'm in my head simultaneously most of the day. And what that has done is, and I'm, I'm working with my emotions, you know, a good therapy will, will treat the symptoms and then give people tools so that they can use these on their own and translate what's happening. And so I can process my emotions now and get back to a, a good place. And when I can't process them because I'm overwhelmed by something and there's been something that's been traumatic, I understand what's going on. And right. uh, it doesn't, my, I never had another depression after yeah. doing this work and my anxiety has gone down considerably and I'm in a great relationship and my relationship with my children improved. Everything has gotten better. <laughs> but apart from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and with the freedom of the work, it's just such a beautiful way to yeah. connect with people. I get people that have been in years of CBT or psychoanalysis, and they just got jammed up in their heads. Mm. And I'm not disparaging other ways of working, but therapists really need to know how to work with thoughts and insights and the body. One or It's got to be the whole, the whole system because... It's a whole system. Yeah. Yeah. Hilary, tell me about the book you've chosen to read from. Well, I've chosen to read from Diana Fosha's seminal text on experiential, uh, accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy, AEDP. So this right. is the book that first came out on AEDP that I read uh, right after I saw her speak. And um, I picked this, a passage. This is tru truly a book that has shaped you and changed you. This is the the book that has <laughs> shaped and changed. And since then, um, she's written other books and yeah. uh, edited other books. Uh, but I, why I wanted to pick this was for the people out there that are science-minded or cynical about there's so much content out there that you know you don't know if something is real and if it's grounded in science and if it works or if it doesn't and now there's research on AEDP now years later and it's empirically validated but I just wanted to read the primary source yeah. on, on uh, I picked a passage on core emotions 
which mm-hmm. are the fundamental, may I say a little bit just about yeah, core emotions? In the book, when I read it, it's the word affect and emotion are used interchangeably, um, mm-hmm. especially out in the um, in the lay public world. Uh, so, but core emotion and core affect, when I read about it, uh, are the same thing. So you can substitute the word emotion. And these are wired in programs. The core mm-hmm. emotions are sadness, anger, fear, disgust, joy, excitement, and sexual excitement. Those are the emotions that we could call them the, the selfish emotions because they're all about what's good for us. And we have these, we evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to have emotions because it gave us an edge as an animal in survival, mm. meaning that uh, they're fast. Basically, the definition of a core emotion is a physical, uh, a body-based program for action. And that action is meant to be adaptive, like running when you're afraid or fighting when you're attacked. And so we all have these emotions. People listening, if they take one thing from this uh, episode today, don't judge your emotions because it makes no sense. You can't stop emotions from happening all you can do is be aware when they happen and change your response to them. But you cannot stop a core emotion from going off in the middle of your brain, activating your body, because you don't know you've had it until all that's happened. (laughs) Got it. Um, This is a great setup. I'm really curious to hear the passage and the pages you're reading for us. So, Hilary, over to you. Okay, this is from the book, The Transforming Power of Affect, otherwise known as emotion, the section called Core Affect. All major works on emotion emphasize the way in which emotions serve an individual's adaptation. While their focus may be more on cognition or communication or development or physiology, it is clear that however construed, emotion is fundamental to a person's optimal being. Equally noteworthy from the perspective of a clinical psychotherapy practice, are the myriad efforts people make to mute, sabotage, and reduce the impact, the powerful transforming impact of emotions in their lives. Clearly emotions can transform for good and bad, and psychic maneuvers designed to block access to their experience and expression are also powerful forces to contend with. Day-to-day clinical work reveals many ways in which people cut themselves off from the wellspring of adaptation. The therapeutic work consists of helping them be nourished once again by emotional experiences and includes understanding precisely why emotions had to go underground, be shunted off to the side, or consigned to oblivion in the first place. The view of affect proposed here is from a distinctly clinical perspective. The term core affect has been chosen simply to refer to that which is vital and spontaneous and comes to the fore when efforts to inhibit spontaneity are not in operation. The aim of this work is to help clinicians effectively counteract the forces against experience, which are defenses, and allay fears that fuel those forces, like anxiety, helplessness, and shame, and harness the power of core effective experience 
so that it can enrich and improve the individual's life. The facilitation of core affect enhances the patient's adaptation and helps him, her, or they gain access to inner resources necessary to meet his, her, or they unique needs, specifications, and life agenda. Core affect, or more precisely, core affective experience, refers to our emotional responses when we do not try to mask, block, distort, or severely mute them. Defining aspects of the experience of core affect include a subjective, personally elaborated experience, some change in bodily state, and the release of an adaptive tendency towards some expressive action known as an adaptive action tendency, here defined by Goleman in 1995, broadly and psychologically, and I quote, each emotion offers a distinctive readiness to act. Each points us in a direction that has worked well to handle the recurrent challenges of human life, unquote. Core affect certainly includes categorical emotions such as fear, sadness, joy, and anger, but it also includes self and relational affective experiences. Categorical emotions are the self's reactions to events. Self-affective experiences are the self's reading of the self. And relational affective experiences are the self's reading of the emotional status of the relationship. When accessed, the core affective phenomena activate deep transformational processes. Defining feature of core affect is that it has the power to engender a potentially healing state transformation when expressed in the absence of defenses and such blocking emotions as anxiety and shame. As James, William James, in 1902 said, intense emotions seldom leave things as they found them. And this applies to the body, the self, and the relationship. They are all transformed in the wake of core affective experience. Hilary, that was wonderful. Um, I hope what, it was understandable. <laughs> it, it, I mostly. <laughs> and that's why I'm, I'm going to be curious about what you've read for us. Yes. But first of all, I'm curious to know, what's the, what's the deep truth that you see in these pages? The deep truth is that we live in an emotion-phobic society mm. that gives us the impression that emotions are something we can overcome, be bigger than, that we're weak for having them, that they're lesser. And this turns that on its head. And the right. science is unrefutable because now that with the invention of the MRI and the fMRI, we've been able to image healthy brains. It used to be that you couldn't do that because um, x-rays were not, you didn't want to x-ray healthy people. Right. So, and it turns out when you help people experience their emotions, they heal. So that what I, when I learned this method and became proficient at it, after practicing for about 10 years, for the first time in my life, I felt like I had something to say. And <laughs> my my pet peeve that I didn't get any of this information 
when I was younger, yeah. turned into a moral outrage that our society does not start educating uh, teenagers on emotions in high school. Because when you understand emotions, you feel so much less crazy. Everything starts to make sense. Anxiety and depression make sense. And there's a path to healing. Yeah. And so what happened after I, I had been treating people that came for diagnoses like treatment-resistant depression, meaning that they had tried many other modalities, had tried many, many medications, Yep. had tried even electroshock therapy. And uh, I wrote about one particular person, Brian, that the New York Times ended up publishing because what happened is I wrote an op-ed to share those, this type of work and uh, it ended up getting published. It was the first thing that I ever really wow. wrote seriously and it went viral and that's how I got a book deal. Oh, that's a high bar. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very lucky. But the bottom line is that when I... When this person came to see me and told me that they had been to many psychiatrists, many therapists, mm. tried many methods, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel and accept the diagnosis of depression. I thought, let me re reimagine this person as someone who had trauma because all these symptoms are really that we all suffer are symptoms of trauma and the definition we are changing from these catastrophic events like like um, war, like war or something, yeah. and uh, being a, um, the victim of a, of a terrible crime. In ADP, we define trauma as experiencing overwhelming emotions in the face of utter aloneness. So they mm. cannot be moved through. And we need then defenses, which are these brilliant protective maneuvers that thank goodness we our mind and body can create to spare us the emotional pain uh, that sometimes is just unbearable so we can go on with life. But turns out we can identify these defenses, move them aside when we respect them and honor mm. them for the job they've done and work our way down that triangle, which uh, again came from the academic literature. I didn't invent anything new. I seem to have an act for taking complex <laughs> jargony material like I just read and making it so that a 15-year-old can understand it, but not dumb it down. So that's my, yeah. who knew? That's my, um, seems to be my talent. It's a good gift. <laughs> I, I feel I have a, a similar gift, so yes. perhaps we're, we're connected like that. Oh, yeah. Um, Hilary, I'm interested in, I'm going to just pick up on that piece around trauma, that sense of overwhelming sense of aloneness. What's the role in others in helping us hear the whisper of our emotions? Mm. Such an important question. When we are little, the role of others is vital and necessary to the point that, again, a moral outrage that parents aren't educated in emotions. I'm actually submitting a book proposal to teach parents about emotions so they don't unwittingly create anxiety and shame mm. and guilt, depression in their children. So when we are born, we come out of the womb and our emotions are all there, pre-wired, ready to go. And when we, uh, for those, for you and for those of you listening who have seen a baby who does not yet have inhibition, they let it rip. <laughs> you know when they are sad, you know when they're angry. 
Um, you know, I was when next to one of them on a plane yesterday. Oh, so I, you know. I, I saw the whole gamut of, of the, well, not the whole gamut, but most exactly. of the gamut of the, um, the core emotions that you listed for us. Exactly. And we are wired evolutionarily that, that the caregivers act as the soothers mm. for the infant until the infant grows into a child and a teenager and can regulate their own emotions. Right. So when things go well, um, good enough parents will help their children identify their emotions, not by saying, oh, you're feeling sad, but in these, um, in these ways that happened intuitively to most of us, meaning you see, um, you see your baby very angry, let's say, because you took a toy away and the, the parent kind of changes their tone of voice automatically to say, oh, you are so angry. Right, not mimicking the anger because that would scare the kid. And through a a repetitive process of soothing and being held and naming emotions and being Mm. reassuring, uh, children can move through emotions when they're very young. It's through physical touch and holding and soothing and nursing, and then older through uh, all, all different ways. So parents are and caregivers are vital to the regulation. We're talking Mm. about. the body being regulated in a balanced state of arousal. So when we get into the science, it becomes all about temperature regulation and how the the body functions optimally. Um, So, but then when we get older, we can mostly regulate our emotions on our own until we have catastrophic events that happen to us, like the death of a loved one, something where we've exceeded our capacity to manage alone and then we need the support of other people right. to help us through it. So it's, as we say in AEDP, it's not what happens like a trauma. It's what happens next that matters. Am I alone in that trauma or am I supported and made space to grieve as long as I need? Uh, and is there therapeutic help when I get stuck or when I don't have the support I need? What's the nuance what's the difference between regulating emotion and suppressing emotion mm. as to a lay person like me that kind of feels like the same regulation means i'm i've got it under control and when i think of my own relationship with my own emotions it's quite a controlled it's quite a controlled relationship and i'm like am i well regulated or am I just, <laughs> have I just boxed my feelings away and I'm like, you know, a head being carted around by a body? Yes. Um, and it's a very good question. It's sort of not a simple answer. Uh, the people that come into my office, don't have, the people come to therapy when they have symptoms. They don't come mm. when their defenses are working, right? right. So... You may be walking around in a defensive state and, as you would say, boxing your emotions, but you're not having symptoms. You're not, mm. your, your partners and friends are not complaining about your uh, habits or, like, for example, one can box their feelings and be alcoholic right. and uh, uh, they're not regulated. They're they're using def- a defense, right? A defense that works very well, which yeah. is um, like alcohol. Numbing. Yeah, exactly, and numbing. 
So, but there's a huge difference between suppressing and regulating mm. that actually when there's research uh, under stress, if you are, if you, if you're not feeling anything, but you're boxed your emotions, your body will respond as though you are in a hyper aroused state. Right. If, uh, if you're legitimately calm in your body and you feel calm in your mind, it will be reflected. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's not always easy to tell. It is as a psychotherapist because nobody comes in to see me unless something yeah. is the matter. Um, Do we only, let's put aside the lucky few who've had a, somehow an upbringing that allows them to be fluent and connected and engaged in their emotional range. Mm -hmm. um, so putting aside that 1.3% of the population <laughs> for the remaining <laughs> chunk of us. Yes. Do we only get to, does the door only open for us to reconnect to emotion through trauma or hard times? No, not at all. In fact, um, part of my sort of mission, if I was to call it that, is to give everybody a basic, to give everybody access to a basic education in emotions and exercises and tools to connect with them and work with them uh, during hard times and during moments of stress. Um, so it is true that people, when they come in in crisis, are highly motivated to do the work <laughs> that they might not have been motivated right. to do before. And I think yeah. I'm, I'm an example of that. Had I not had two, two major depressions and have to go on medication and really be like, whoa, like, yeah. why did that happen? Um, and I think there's a path forward where there is no downside to understanding your emotions. Just like we all in high school, if you take mm. basic biology, you learn you have a heart and an esophagus and a stomach and a brain. And emotions happen to everybody usually every day, you know, for the rest of yeah. their life. And it ebbs and flows that there's no one that has a stress-free life. If you're in a relationship, you're going to have emotions because you're going to bump up against each other and have conflict. Yeah. Conflict brings up emotions. So I I am I think everybody on the planet would benefit. I know everyone on the planet would benefit from a, a basic education in emotions, mm -hmm. as I show in the book. And I do think that's the path to a more peaceful world because so much of the aggression, aggression is really a defense against mm -hmm. somebody experiencing an emotion. Unless they're in a moment where their life is threatened, there seems to me to be no real reason that we should have war anymore when everybody can eat and we can help each other out. So why do people fight? Why when I go on the subway and somebody bumps into someone, does the other person want to pounce on the other person yeah. and do people start being mean to each other? This yeah. is all emotions at work. So, so, so much of what we see in our society that is obviously sick and ill psychologically mm. has has to do with emotions and that people aren't aren't working with them the way that they should to stay calmer and to have insight and to have good behavior. Yeah. One of the biggest myths about emotions, and I think the reason people fear them, is because they don't understand that, let's use anger because it's it's an emotion I love teaching people about because it's some it's it's sort of the most uh, people struggle with it. People yeah. think anger is about the the release of the anger in terms of some destructive action, whether it's hitting somebody or 
calling someone a jerk, calling people names. And when you learn to experience an emotion, that's a completely internal process. Mm. So I teach people step by step how to experience an emotion in the body. No action has happened at all. And then once someone is very familiar with what's happening to them, the last step is to think through using logic and common yeah. sense how, what to do with this emotion, whether there's a conversation that needs to be happening, whether there's a boundary that needs to be set, whether you need to leave a relationship. Um, and that's, so yeah. that's where you use a combination of your emotions and your intellect to pop out yeah. the best solutions so that you can meet the challenges of life with as much empowerment and knowledge mm. as possible mm. and thrive. It's the Viktor Frankl quote around between stimulus and response lies freedom. Exactly. Exactly. It's all about that pause. Yeah. When you notice an emotion to go down in the body, not up and ruminate in your head and gnash your teeth and, you know, obsess and things like that. Can, can you give us um, a sense of how we start to notice our emotions in our body? Because for me, emotions feel... Um, fleeting. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm really curious as to, and I'm, and, and it's a part of the kind of journey I'm on, which is like to be able to hear or be understand or be better connected to the emotions I have. And I find it very hard to notice them and name them. Mm -hmm. So when you told that story in that transformative workshop, which is like, how are you feeling about this teaching? I'm feeling anxious. Mm -hmm. I would have said, I'm feeling fine, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, and then, so if you were in my office and you said that, mm. um, I might say something like, that's terrific, Michael. I'm so glad you're feeling fine. I heard a little bit the tentativeness <laughs> that I think, um, yeah. why don't, what it, would it be okay if we slowed way down together? Mm. And you just, with, with a compassionate, curious stance in yourself, just gently noticed what was happening in your chest, gently noticed what was happening in your stomach area, gently noticed your arms and your legs, yep. your back up through your head. And we tried to put maybe one or two words, sensation words on what you noticed. And by sensation words, can you give me an example of what those are? Yes. I feel tight. Mm. I feel jittery. Mm. I feel expansive and light. Right. I feel heavy. I feel something behind my eyes that makes me think I want to cry. Right. I feel energy in my arms. Mm. I feel something in my feet. Right. So it's noticing sensation bodily sensation mm -hmm. as the first clue to an emotion that might be there exactly that is the shortcut because the body doesn't lie right. it tells the truth our thoughts lie to us all the time telling us that we're not good enough and uh we're not worthy and those type of things um we should have another conversation <laughs> after you read the book because everything you just said you're interested in it's a step-by-step yeah. -step and for people listening, I hope you Google the change triangle. That's the yeah. two-dimensional representation of 
that you can almost superimpose. It's an upside down triangle and you put the point of the triangle in your body where core emotions mm. are. And when we inhibit our emotions, which we do with inhibitory emotions like anxiety and guilt and shame, right? Those are the emotions that we also need to keep us uh, civilized and and that right. the, in in favor of the group because we need to be bound together as groups to also survive. And so there's this constant kind of tension and conflict between what's good for me, what do I need, what do I want, and what's good for you, right. my mom and dad, my family, my peers, so that I am not banished, so that people like me. And that tension, if we don't understand that conflict and we don't make space for multiple feelings, right. um, all that, all those emotions swirling around in the body are uncomfortable, and that's why we move from the top of the triangle on the right side to the top on the left side to defenses, which again, we're defining not pejoratively, but as really having helped us. And we, we, we're we not in the business right. of getting rid of defenses. We just want flexibility. And defenses are just anything we do to avoid feeling emotionally uncomfortable. Right. And there's a myriad of them. On my website, <laughs> I have a huge list because people love to notice their defenses, but mostly their partners and their families' defenses. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This is the ammunition you've been looking for exactly. to finally explain to your partner why they're broken. Exactly. <laughs> right. Your judgmentalness means you're having a feeling underneath, and it does. <laughs> um, Hillary, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, and, and it feels like we've just got it started. But um, I'm curious to know as a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between us? Hmm. Oh, my goodness, so much. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, just back to that idea that um, just a reinforcing not to judge emotions that makes no sense, mm. to understand that emotions are physical experience, that they're there for a good reason, and that if we avoid them, we really lose a connection to our authentic self mm. and to really others and for really deep and fulfilling uh, connection, we have to be connected to our emotions and we have to understand emotions so that when the people we love behave badly, we can look beyond the behavior, uh, not accepting bad behavior. And with our children too, for parents, we want to corral proper behavior as right. we validate and make space for emotional experience, which just means when somebody says, I feel sad, you don't say, oh, get over it. <laughs> Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. There's nothing to feel sad about. You say instead, I hear you. Mm. That was a loss. Yeah. And I'm here for you. There's nothing to fix. There's nothing to do. It's all okay. I liked how we finished by talking about learning to notice your defenses to emotions. That was helpful for me because rather than trying to sense emotions directly, something that I'm not always good at, sort of noticing the, the ripple effects around the emotion feels like a helpful tactic. I think it's kind of like how astrologists look for black holes. You can't see a black hole, so you have to notice the gravitational waves around it the, the way that light moves around it to actually give you a clue as to where and what the black hole actually is.
So, you know, I might not be that nuanced at picking up, say, sadness. But what if I started to get better at noticing what I tend to do in moments of sadness to distract me from the sadness? How I turn my attention away from what I might be noticing or being present to in my body, which, you know, that physical manifestation is a clue to or a hint of or a way of sadness actually showing up. You know, I love this conversation because I have come to realize that for me, one of the ways that I need to keep learning and growing and evolving is to get better at this stuff. And that's why I'd be revisiting a couple of interviews that this conversation reminded me of. Laura Breitman, who I love, she's a wonderful writer, relatively new book out in the world. Um, that book's called How Loss Can Lead to Love. And then Stephen Jenkinson, uh, who has written wonderfully and thoughtfully about being an elder and about death. He, he, he as he says, his, his roots are in the death trade. Um, that interview is called How to Hold Gifts of Responsibility and Grief. And if you'd like to learn more about Hillary and her work and her books, um, her website is her name. So Hillary Jacobs Hendel, H-E-N-D-E-L.com. All of that, of course, is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I appreciate having an audience. I appreciate that you love these interviews as much as I do. Um, of course, when you can give them a review or give them some stars or just suggest them to somebody else to listen to that helps us grow our audience person by person listener by listener and that is the goal so thank you you're awesome and you're doing great